Section 29 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rowan Pattergill. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 10, Part 2. Even at its stormiest, Sunday was a blessed day. Ursula woke to it with a feeling of immense relief. She wondered why her heart was so light. When she remembered it was a Sunday, a gladness seemed to burst out around her, a feeling of great freedom. The whole world was for twenty-four hours revoked, put back. Only the Sunday world existed. She loved the very confusion of the household. It was lucky if the children slept till seven o'clock. Usually, soon after six, a chirp was heard, a voice, an excited chirp began, announcing the creation of a new day. There was a thudding of quick little feet, and the children were up and about, scampering in their shirts with pink legs and glistening flossy hair, all clean from the Saturday's night bathing, their souls excited by their bodies' cleanliness. And the house began to teem with rushing, half-naked, clean children. One of their parents rose, Either the mother, easy and slatternly with her thick dark hair loosely coiled and slipping over one ear, or the father, warm and comfortable, and ruffled black hair and shirt unbuttoned at the neck. Then the girls upstairs heard the continual, Now then, Billy, what are you up to? in the father's strong vibrating voice, or the mother's dignified, I have said, Cassie, I will not have it. It was amazing how the father's voice could ring out like a gong without his being in the least moved, and how the mother could speak like a queen, holding an audience, though her blouse was sticking out all round, and her hair was not fastened up, and the children were yelling a pandemonium. Gradually breakfast was produced, and the elder girls came down into the babel, whilst half-naked children flitted round like the wrong ends of the cherubs, as Gudrun said, watching the bare little legs and the chubby tails appearing and disappearing. Gradually the young ones were captured and nightdresses finally removed, ready for the clean Sunday shirt. But before the Sunday shirt was slipped over the fleecy head, away darted the naked body to wallow in the sheepskin which formed the parlour rug, whilst the mother walked after, protesting sharply, holding the shirt like a noose, and the father's bronze voice rang out, and the naked child wallowing on its back in the deep sheepskin announced gleefully, I'm bathing in the sea, mother! Why should I walk after you with your shirt? said the mother. Get up now! I'm bathing in the sea, mother! repeated the wallowing naked figure. We say bathing, not bathing, said the mother with her strange and different dignity. I am waiting here with your shirt. At length shirts were put on and stockings were paired and the little trousers buttoned and the little petticoats tied behind. The besetting cowardice of the family was its shirking of the garter question. Where are your garters, Cassie? I don't know. Well, look for them but not one of the elder Brangwins would really face the situation. After Cassie had groveled under all the furniture and blacked up all her Sunday cleanliness to the infinite grief of everybody, the garter was forgotten in the new washing of the young face and hands. Later, Ursula would be indignant to see Miss Cassie marching into church from Sunday school with her stocking slothered down to her ankle and a grubby knee showing. It's disgraceful, cried Ursula at dinner. People will think we're pigs, and the children are never washed. 
Never mind what people think, said the mother superbly. I see that the child is bathed properly, and if I satisfy myself, I satisfy everybody. She can't keep her stocking up and no garter, and it isn't the child's fault that she was let to go without one. The garter trouble continued in varying degrees, but till each child wore long skirts or long trousers, it was not removed. On this day of decorum, the Brangwen family went to church by the high road, making a detour outside of the garden hedge, rather than climb the wall into the churchyard. There was no law of this from the parents. The children themselves were the wardens of the Sabbath decency, very jealous and instant with each other. It came to be gradually that after church on Sundays the house was really something of a sanctuary, with peace breathing like a strange bird alighted in the rooms, indoors only reading and tale-telling and quiet pursuits such as drawing were allowed. Out of doors all playing was to be carried on unobtrusively. If there were noise, yelling or shouting, then some fierce spirit woke up in the father and the elder children so that the younger were subdued, afraid of being excommunicated. The children themselves preserved the Sabbath, if Ursula, in her vanity, sang, Il était un berger et ronronron petit patapon. Teresa was sure to cry, That's not a Sunday song, now, Ursula. You don't know, replied Ursula, superior. Nevertheless, she wavered, and her song faded down before she came to the end. Because, though she did not know it, her Sunday was very precious to her, she found herself in a strange, undefined place where her spirit could wander in dreams unassailed. The white-robed spirit of Christ passed between olive trees. It was a vision, not a reality, and she herself partook of the visionary being. There was a voice in the night calling, Samuel, Samuel, and still the voice called in the night, but not this night, nor last night, but in the unfathomed night of Sunday, of the Sabbath silence. There was Sin, the serpent, in whom was also wisdom. There was Judas, with the money and the kiss. There was no actual sin. If Ursula slapped Teresa across the face, even on a Sunday, that was not sin, the everlasting. It was misbehaviour. If Billy played truant from Sunday school, he was bad, he was wicked, but he was not a sinner. Sin was absolute and everlasting. Wickedness and badness were temporary and relative. When Billy, catching up the local jargon, called Cassie a sinner, everybody detested him. Yet when there came to the marsh a flippity-floppity foxhound puppy, he was mischievously christened sinner. The Brangwen shrank from applying their religion to their own immediate actions. They wanted the sense of the eternal and immortal, not a list of rules for everyday conduct. Therefore, they were badly behaved children, headstrong and arrogant, though their feelings were generous. They had, moreover intolerable to their ordinary neighbours, a proud gesture that did not fit with the jealous idea of the democratic Christian, so that they were always extraordinary outside of the ordinary. How bitterly Ursula resented her first acquaintance with the evangelical teachings. She got a peculiar thrill from the application of salvation to her own personal case, Jesus died for me, he suffered for me. There was a pride and thrill in it, followed almost immediately by a sense of dreariness. Jesus with holes in his hands and feet. It was distasteful to her. 
the shadowy Jesus with the stigmata, that was her own vision. But Jesus, the actual man, talking with teeth and lips, telling one to put one's finger into his wounds like a villager gloating into sores, repelled her. She was enemy of those who insisted on the humanity of Christ. If he were just a man living an ordinary human life, then she was indifferent. But it was the jealousy of vulgar people which must insist on the humanity of Christ. It was the vulgar mind which would allow nothing extra-human, nothing beyond itself to exist. It was the dirty, desecrating hands of the revivalists which wanted to drag Jesus into this everyday life, to dress Jesus up in trousers and frock coat, to compel him to a vulgar equality of footing. It was the impudent suburban soul which would ask, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? Against all of this, the Brangwen stood at bay. If anyone, it was the mother who was most careless of the vulgar clamour. She would have nothing extra-human. She never really subscribed all her life to Brangwen's mystical passion. But Ursula was with her father. As she became adolescent, 13, 14, she set more and more against her mother's practical indifference. To Ursula, there was something callous, almost wicked in her mother's attitude. What did Anna Brangwen in these years care for God or Jesus or angels? She was the immediate life of today. Children were still being born to her. She was thronged with all the little activities of her family, and almost instinctively she resented her husband's slavish service to the church, his dark subject hankering to worship an unseen God. What did the unrevealed God matter when a man had a young family that needed fettling for? Let him attend to the immediate concerns of his life, not go projecting himself towards the ultimate. But Ursula was all for the ultimate. She was always in revolt against babies and muddled domesticity. To her, Jesus was not another world. He was not of this world. He did not thrust his hands under her face and pointing to his wounds say, Look, Ursula Brangwen, I got these for your sake. Now do as you told. To her, Jesus was beautifully remote, shining in the distance like a white moon at sunset, a crescent moon beckoning as it follows the sun out of our ken, sometimes dark clouds standing very far off, pricking up into a clear yellow band at sunset of a winter evening reminded her of Calvary. Sometimes the full moon rising blood-red upon the hill terrified her with the knowledge that Christ was now dead, hanging heavy and dead upon the cross. On Sundays this visionary world came to pass. She heard the long hush. She knew the marriage of dark and light was taking place. In church the voice sounded, re-echoing, not from this world, as if the church itself were a shell that still spoke the language of creation. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Over this Ursula was stirred as by a call from far off. In those days would not the sons of God have found her fair? 
Would she not have been taken to wife by one of the sons of God? It was a dream that frightened her, for she could not understand it. Who were the sons of God? Was not Jesus the only begotten son? Was not Adam the only man created from God? Yet there were men not begotten by Adam. Who were these and whence did they come? They too must arrive from God. Had God many offspring besides Adam and besides Jesus, children whose origin the children of Adam cannot recognize? And perhaps these children, these sons of God, had no expulsion, no ignominy of the fall. These came on free feet to the daughters of men, and saw they were fair, and took them to wife, so that the woman conceived and brought forth men of renown. This was a genuine fate. She moved about in the essential days when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, nor would any comparison of myths destroy her passion in the knowledge. Jove had become a bull or a man in order to love a mortal woman. He had begotten in her a giant, a hero. Very good, so he had, in Greece. For herself, she was no Grecian woman. Not Jove, nor Pan, nor any of those gods, not even Bacchus nor Apollo could come to her. But the sons of God who took to wife the daughters of men, these were such as should take her to wife. She clung to the secret hope, the aspiration. She lived a dual life, one where the facts of daily life encompassed everything, being legion, and the other wherein the facts of daily life were superseded by the eternal truth. So utterly did she desire the sons of God should come to the daughters of men, and she believed more in her desire and its fulfillment than in the obvious facts of life. The fact that a man was a man did not state his descent from Adam, did not exclude that he was also one of the unhistoried, unaccountable sons of God. As yet, she was confused but not denied. Again she heard the voice. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. But it was explained the needle's eye was a little gateway for foot passengers through which a great humped camel with his load could not possibly squeeze himself, or perhaps at great risk if he were a little camel he might get through, for one could not absolutely exclude the rich man from heaven, said the Sunday school teachers. It pleased her also to know that in the East one must use hyperbole or else remain unheard, because the Eastern man must see a thing swelling to fill all heaven or dwindle to a mere nothing before he is suitably impressed. She immediately sympathized with this Eastern mind. Yet the words continued to have a meaning that was untouched either by the knowledge of gateways or hyperboles. The historical or local or psychological interest in the words was another thing. There remained unalterable, the inexplicable value of the saying. What was this relation between a needle's eye, a rich man, and heaven? What sort of needle's eye? What sort of rich man? What sort of heaven? Who knows? It means the absolute world and can never be more than half interpreted in terms of the relative world. But must one apply the speech literally? Was her father a rich man? Couldn't he get to heaven? Or was he only a half-rich man? Or was he merely a poor man? At any rate, unless he gave everything away to the poor, he would find it much harder to get to heaven. The needle's eye would be too tight for him. She almost wished he were penniless poor. If one were coming to the base of it, any man was rich who was not as poor as the poorest. 
She had her qualms when, in imagination, she saw her father giving away their piano and two cows and the capital at the bank to the labourers of the district, so that they, the Brangwens, should be as poor as the Wherries, and she did not want it. She was impatient. Very well, she thought. We'll forego that heaven, that's all. At any rate, the needle's eye sought. And she dismissed the problem. She was not going to be as poor as the Wherries, and not for all the sayings on earth, the miserable, squalid Wherries. So she reverted to the non-literal application of the scriptures. Her father very rarely read, but he had collected many books of reproductions, and he would sit and look at these, curiously intent, like a child, yet with a passion that was not childish. He loved the early Italian painters, but particularly Giotto and Fra Angelico and Filippo Lippi. The great compositions cast a spell over him. How many times he had turned to Raphael's dispute of the sacrament, or Fra Angelico's Last Judgment, or the beautiful complicated renderings of the Adoration of the Magi, and always each time he received the same gradual fulfilment of delight. It had to do with the establishment of a whole mystical architectural conception which used the human figure as a unit. Sometimes he had to hurry home and go to the Fra Angelico Last Judgment, the pathways of open graves, the huddled earth on either side, the seemly heaven arranged above, the singing process to paradise on the one hand, the stuttering descent to hell on the other, completed and satisfied him. He did not care whether or not he believed in devils or angels. The whole conception gave him the deepest satisfaction and he wanted nothing more. Ursula, accustomed to these pictures from her childhood, hunted out their detail she adored Fra Angelico's flowers and light and angels. She liked the demons and enjoyed the hell. But the representation of the encircled God, surrounded by all angels on high, suddenly bored her. The figure of the Most High bored her and roused her resentment. Was this the culmination and the meaning of it all, this draped, null figure? The angels were so lovely and the light so beautiful and only for this to surround such a banality for God. She was dissatisfied, but not fit as yet to criticise. There was yet so much to wonder over. Winter came, pine branches were torn down in the snow, the green pine needles looked rich upon the ground, there was the wonderful starry straight track of a pheasant's footsteps across the snow imprinted so clear there was the lobbing mark of the rabbit, two holes abreast, two holes following behind. The hare shoved deeper shafts, slanting, and his two hind feet came down together and made one large pit. The cat podded little holes, and birds made a lacy pattern. Gradually they gathered the feeling of expectation. Christmas was coming. In the shed at nights, a secret candle was burning, a sound of veiled voices was heard. The boys were learning the old mystery play of St. George and Beelzebub. Twice a week, by lamplight, there was a choir practice in the church for the learning of old carols Brangwen wanted to hear. The girls went to these practices. Everywhere was a sense of mystery and rousedness. Everybody was preparing for something. The time came near the girls were decorating the church with cold fingers binding holly and fir and yew about pillars, till a new spirit was in the church the stone broke out into dark rich leaf, the arches put forth their buds, and cold flowers rose to blossom in the dim mystic atmosphere. Ursula must weave mistletoe over the door, 
and over the screen and hang a silver dove from a sprig of yew till dusk came down and the church was like a grove. In the cowshed, the boys were blacking their faces for a dress rehearsal. The turkey hung dead with open speckled wings in the dairy. The time was come to make pies in readiness. The expectation grew more tense. The star was risen into the sky. The songs, the carols were ready to hail it. The star was the sign in the sky. Earth too should give a sign. As evening drew on, hearts beat fast with anticipation. Hands were full of ready gifts. There were the tremulously expectant words of the church service. The night was past and morning was come. The gifts were given and received. Joy and peace made a flapping of wings in each heart. There was a great burst of carols and peace of the world had dawned. Strife had passed away. Every hand was linked in hand. Every heart was singing. It was bitter though that Christmas day as it drew on to evening and night became a sort of bank holiday, flat and stale. The morning was so wonderful, but in the afternoon and evening the ecstasy perished like a nipped thing, like a bud in a false spring. Alas, that Christmas was only a domestic feast, a feast of sweetmeats and toys. Why did not grown-ups also change their everyday hearts and give way to ecstasy? Where was the ecstasy? How passionately the Brangwens craved for it, the ecstasy. The father was troubled, dark-faced and disconsolate on Christmas night because the passion was not there, because the day was become as every day and hearts were not aflame. The mother was a kind of absentness as ever, as if she were exiled for all her life. Where was the fiery heart of joy? Now the coming was fulfilled. Where was the star, the magi's transport, the thrill of new being that shook the earth? Still it was there, even if it were faint and inadequate. The cycle of creation still wheeled in the church year. After Christmas, the ecstasy slowly sank and changed. Sunday followed Sunday, trailing a fine movement, a finely developed transformation over the heart of the family the heart that was big with joy, that had seen the star and had followed to the inner walls of the nativity, that there had swooned in the great light, must now feel the light slowly withdrawing, a shadow falling, darkening, the chill crept in, silence came over the earth, and then all was darkness. The veil of the temple was rent, each heart gave up the ghost, and sank, dead. They moved quietly, a little wanness on the lips of the children at Good Friday, feeling the shadow upon their hearts. Then, pale with a deathly scent, came the lilies of resurrection that shone coldly till the comforter was given. But why the memory of the wounds and the death? Surely Christ rose with healed hands and feet, sound and strong and glad. Surely the passage of the cross and the tomb was forgotten. But no. Always the memory of the wounds? Always the smell of grave clothes? A small thing was resurrection compared with the cross and the death in this cycle. So the children lived the year of Christianity, the epic of the soul of mankind. Year by year the inner unknown drama went on in them. Their hearts were born and came to fullness, suffered on the cross, gave up the ghost, 
and rose again to unnumbered days, untired, having at least this rhythm of eternity in a ragged, inconsequential life. But it was becoming a mechanical action now, this drama. Birth at Christmas, for death at Good Friday. On Easter Sunday, the life drama was as good as finished, for the resurrection was shadowy and overcome by the shadow of death. The ascension was scarce noticed, a mere confirmation of death. What was the hope and the fulfilment? Nay, was it all only a useless after-death, a wan, bodiless after-death? Alas, and alas for the passion of the human heart that must die so long before the body was dead. For from the grave, after the passion and the trial of anguish, the body rose torn and chill and colourless. Did not Christ say, Mary? And when she turned with outstretched hands to him, did he not hasten to add, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. Then how could the hands rejoice, or the heart be glad, seeing themselves repulsed? Alas for the resurrection of the dead body! Alas for the wavering, glimmering appearance of the risen Christ! Alas for the ascension into heaven, which is a shadow within death, a complete passing away! Alas that so soon the drama is over, that life is ended at thirty-three, that the half of the year of the soul is cold and historyless. Alas, that a risen Christ has no place with us. Alas, that the memory of the passion of sorrow and death and the grave holds triumph over the pale fact of resurrection. But why? Why shall I not rise with my body whole and perfect, shining with strong life? Why, when Mary says, Rabboni, shall I not take her in my arms and kiss her and hold her to my breast? Why is the risen body deadly and abhorrent with wounds? The resurrection is to life, not to death. Shall I not see those who have risen again walk here among men perfect in body and spirit, whole and glad in the flesh, living in the flesh, loving in the flesh, begetting children in the flesh, arrived at last to wholeness, perfect without scar or blemish, healthy without fear or ill health? Is this not the period of manhood and of joy and fulfilment after the resurrection? Who shall be shadowed by death and the cross being risen, and who shall fear the mystic perfect flesh that belongs to heaven? Can I not then walk this earth in gladness, being risen from sorrow? Can I not eat with my brother happily, and with joy kiss my beloved after my resurrection? celebrate my marriage in the flesh with feastings, go about my business eagerly in the joy of my fellows? Is heaven impatient for me and bitter against this earth, that I should hurry off or that I should linger pale and untouched? Is the flesh which was crucified become as poison to the crowds in the street, or is it as a strong gladness and hope to them as the first flower blossoming out of the earth's humus? End of section 29